we on? Is that working? Yeah. That's great. Okay, good to be with you. Thanks, Fletcher, for reading that. And uh, I hope you've got your Bibles open there. Is it always this cold in Tasmania? Because people have come up to me to say and said, thanks for bringing the weather with you. I'm sorry, we don't have this weather in Sydney. We did not bring this with us. I was up this morning at 6am and... I thought there's this thing called the sun in Sydney. Do you have it down? It came up eventually, but it's so cold. But it's lovely. It's great to be with you. And um, I've, I've got my Tasmanian working. You used the word last night. We don't use the word, but I'm glad you've got the heat pump. Okay. We call them air conditioners, and that's probably to do with what we use them for. But um, it's great to be with you. And uh, it's great to be back at Cornerstone. I think last time I was here we were after some elders training, and uh, I remember preaching uh, that morning, and um, it's good to be with you. I'm going to pray before we start. Have you got Isaiah 6 open? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray as this weekend we look at the theme of how the fear of the Lord encourages us in congregational life. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would fill us with a vision of your greatness so that that would motivate us in all that we do. Teach us, we pray, to fear you, for in that is the beginning of wisdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you vote a couple of weeks ago, the federal election? Yes, you did? Put up your hand if you voted. Okay, that's good. Voting is compulsory in Australia, right? It's one of the great things in Australia... Um, I don't know what you think about that. We often have Americans staying with us and they never understand compulsory voting, but I think it's one of the best things in Australian society. Oh, sorry, it's, it's over here. Is that the problem? Okay, so voting's compulsory. Got it? Okay, I've got a question for you. Voting's compulsory. Practice? 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 It's compulsory? Okay. It's a simple question. This last week... Did you have a good week or a bad week? Good Worked out your answer? Yeah. Okay, voting's compulsory. Good week? Yeah. Bad week? Okay, yep, okay. Some have had a good week or a bad week. I'm glad that most have had a good week. I didn't give you any criteria then, did I? From which to assess. What criteria did you use? I reckon this is a good, the criteria you used. Was it a good week for me? Is that right? Okay, I'm going to give you another one. Voting's not compulsory this time. Did you go to church? Voting's compulsory this one. Did you go to church last Sunday at Cornerstone? Okay, good. Okay, this one you've got to vote secretly, secret ballot. Was it good or was it bad? <laughs> Who preached last Sunday? Campbell? Campbell? Campbell did? Okay, I thought maybe Michael Rich. I could have had to vote. Okay. <laughs> Was it good or bad? You've got to vote. No, no, secret ballot. By the way, what criteria are you using for your vote? Are you using the criteria, was it good for me? Because that's often the criteria that we use. Now, I want, you to, I want you to use your mind for a second. We are in the smallest state of the Commonwealth. Sorry, guys. It's the best but it's also the smallest. We're on this tiny little island off the mainland, okay? Someone told me this morning that down here, people on Bruni Island call Bruni Island yeah. the island and 
Tasmania's the mainland. Well, sorry, I'm not from Bruni Island. You're on this tiny little island off here. And let's face it, you hang off the world's smallest continent. We Australians think we're big, we're not. We're the smallest continent. And we actually form part of a planet that is one of the smallest planets in our solar system. And we actually are part, are, are warmed by the sun that I'm told is one of the smaller suns in the constellation of planets and universes and galaxies and all those sorts of things. Have I made you feel small? Good, I want to. I want to make you feel not just small but unbelievably small. By the way, what is your heritage? Does anyone here have Scottish heritage? Are you really a Presbyterian church? Are you a Tasmanian church? Have you got Dutch heritage? Yeah, I knew that. I knew the Dutch would out... Okay. <laughs> when you come to Tasmania, it's all about the Dutch. Uh, <laughs> how far back can you trace your heritage? Can some of you go back a thousand years? You can? Good. How far does your heritage go back? To Noah. To Noah. Good. <laughs> I want you to think about yourself in terms of your, the, your time. I've made you feel small in terms of space, I want to make you feel small in terms of time, okay? Uh, those old people you're talking about, <laughs> you'll be there soon, very, very soon. Now I want to ask you the question again. The God of the universe asks you, tiny little you, to come along to Cornerstone Church on Sunday morning. And this is what he says. The one who made the planets, the solar systems, the creator of space and time, and he says this, Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. He says to you, come and give something to me. Now I want to ask you, how was church last Sunday? It's not in terms of what I received, but in terms of what you give. You see, the day will come if you've got small children, and if you've had small children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your 14-year-old will stay, well, he will stand at the front door, and he will say, I'm not going to church today. And you're going to say to him, yes, you are. And he's going to say, at six foot two and 80 kilos, I am not going to church, force me. Why should I go? What answer are you going to give? You're going to give the team answer? Come on, we should all go and encourage each other. What are you going to say? No one notices me. You're going to give the schoolroom answer. Come on, we've got to go and learn about God. <laughs> Just doesn't listen at all. Why? Come on. Tomorrow's Sunday, isn't it? I don't want to come to church tomorrow. Why should I go? And please don't say because you're speaking. Okay, <laughs> why should I go? What is the answer in going? Here's the answer. You go to church every Sunday not because of what you get out of it. You go to church for what you give. And primarily, I'm not focusing on what you give to each other, although that will be secondarily very, very important. The reason we go to church each Sunday is to ascribe honour 
to the king. The Lord of the universe, the one who made the planets and flung them into space, the one who knew your great 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 grandmother, calls you, insignificant you, in an insignificant island hanging off an insignificant continent, to go and to ascribe honour to him. He calls you into his temple. Do you go to a temple to church to worship? I'm going to tell you today you do. And I want you to get some temple imagery working here and why that's important in terms of worship. Now, this word worship has gone through, in my lifetime, has gone through some interesting sort of um, devaluation and revaluation. If you were around in the 90s, which most of you were, in the 90s we didn't even use the word worship. Uh, we thought that worship was something that sort of I don't know, people who are a little bit more up the candlestick than, uh, than we are sort of used. Those other churches did worship, but we, we just fellowshipped. We just had a meeting. We didn't use the word worship, and, and that was okay until we started reading our Bibles and we saw that the word worship is in the Bible all over the place. And then we came to the point of thinking, well, if we're worshipping, what does worship mean? And so this is what we're doing at the moment. The word worship means nothing, but we put adjectives with worship so that we give it meaning. I'll give you some adjectives. There's liturgical worship. There's traditional worship. There is renewal worship. There is contemporary worship. There is what somebody called me the other day, off-the-wall worship. And I, I had no idea what off-the-wall worship was, but they're the people who use data projectors in church as opposed to <laughs> hymn books. That's off-the-wall worship. We actually put adjectives with the word worship. There's seeker-sensitive worship. There's traditional worship. Well, as we open Isaiah 6, we've got a passage that's all about worship. And it starts with inappropriate worship. And I want to say to you that there is a way to worship that is inappropriate. Worship is from the fear of the Lord. Let me start this passage for you. In the year that King Uzziah died. See the words there? Now, we can date that. For those of you who want the details, that's 740 BC. Let me tell you about King Uzziah. He was a great king of Judah and he ruled for 52 years. Now, when I'm talking about a king, I'm not talking about a constitutional monarch who lives in Buckingham Palace who has no power. I'm actually talking about an absolute monarch who has the right over life and death. And he has ruled for 52 years. And during his time, he's, he's a bit like David in some ways, that the, that the boundaries of Judah just expand. But, if you know the story from 2 Chronicles 26, there comes a time when this man, through his power, his, his head starts to get just a little bit too big for him. And so he goes into the temple and he burns offerings on the altar in the temple. Now, who is allowed to burn offerings on the altar? The priests was, here's a clue, was King Uzziah a priest? No. He was an absolute monarch, he could do whatever he wanted to, so he presumed upon worship for which he was not qualified. And so if you read, the, if, if you read what happens in 2 Chronicles, that King Uzziah then gets uh, cast down with leprosy and he spends his final years as an outcast because he is defiled, because he has inappropriate worship, because he presumed upon God to do that which only the priest was 
allowed to do. And after 52 years, he dies. Do you know what's probably going to happen in the next 10 years or so? Bad about this, but Queen Elizabeth II will probably die. She's 93. My guess is it won't be long, okay, as it is for all of us. What's it going to be like when she dies? Can you imagine the, the outpouring of grief? It's going to be massive. By the way, please don't answer this question. Are you a monarchist? Please don't answer. <laughs> Will you still be a monarchist after Queen Elizabeth II's passed away? Please don't answer that one either. What's going to happen? There's a little bit of insecurity, isn't there? Imagine if you lived in the country of an absolute monarch who after 52 years has died. Your question is this, who is on the throne and who is on the throne in this passage and the king Isaiah dies? God is on the throne. That's the comfort to the people in Isaiah chapter 6. And so they're the first few words. In the year that king Isaiah died. And then in verse 1, Isaiah gets a vision. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. Firstly, where is he when this happens? He's in the temple. What is the temple? The temple in the Old Testament is not just a symbolic place where heaven and earth meets. The temple is the actual place where God dwells with his people. That's where you go to worship. Where do you go to worship? Where do you worship? You've had a move, haven't you, to the Greek club? What's it called? Where are you at? Where do you worship? The Hellenic Centre. Is that where you worship, in a building? Yes, no. Trick question, isn't it? Is that a sacred building? Oh, St John's is a sacred building. No? Is it as though... Where do you worship? Oh, you might give me a lovely, pious answer. And you might say, I worship God in my heart. <laughs> oh, let's have an embrace. That's lovely. And I hope it's true. But the Bible tells me that I have an impure heart and unclean lips. Maybe you should be worshipping there. Or maybe you're going to give me the answer that all of life is worship. Well, all of life should be worship, absolutely. But I'm asking, where do you worship? Do you really worship God in all of life? Is there something special about Sunday? Is there something special when you come together at the Hellenic Club at 10am or whatever time you meet on Sunday mornings? Or is your whole worship life just all the same as each other and so it just sort of goes along like a, like a flat line because all of life is worship and those of you who work in medical fields will know what flat lines mean. Where do you worship? The testimony of the Old Testament and of the New Testament is this. You worship God in heaven. That's where you go on Sunday morning. Heaven, somewhere in North Hobart. You see, in Exodus 24, Moses goes up on the mountain... And when he's up on the mountain, he beholds the glory of God of heaven. Kind of, you know, turns his back, all that sort of stuff. Once he has beheld heaven, 
What does he do after Exodus 24? Well, if you read Exodus, he comes down in Exodus 25 through the 31. The very next thing he does is he builds a tabernacle. Those chapters are often chapters we jump over because we've got all the details of the tabernacle. Why is the tabernacle so important? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the heaven that he witnessed in Exodus 24 comes down and fills the tabernacle. The cloud, the Shekinah glory comes down and fills the tabernacle. It's not just a place that's symbolic of God's presence. It is God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant is there. The mercy seat is there. God, as God dwelt with Adam in, the wild, in, the, uh, in Eden, so God dwells with his people in the wilderness in the tabernacle. And it is the centre of the worship life of Israel. When they, when they arrive into the land and it's more permanent, David says, hey God, I think I should build you a house. Remember 2 Samuel 7? And God says, really, you're going to build me a house? No, 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 I'm going to build a house. It's not you who's going to build the house. And he builds the house through Solomon. And do you remember that Solomon builds now the temple, the permanent tabernacle? Well, that's great. That's a great building. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, what happens? Again, God comes down and at the dedication of the temple, fills the temple. The glory of God comes down. Read it. You can read it both in Chronicles and in Kings, 2 Chronicles 7, and fills the temple. It is God's presence coming down and being with us. Heaven comes to earth and where you are worshipping is in heaven. Now, let you say, well, that's, that's lovely. I know that's all in the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Well, there's this guy who comes in the New Testament who actually is God. His name is Jesus. And if you look at John chapter 1, we see that Jesus comes and dwells with us. But let me go to the Greek, because it's always better in the Greek. When it comes down in John chapter 1, the word that's used there is Jesus, God, comes and tabernacles with us. Those who've seen Jesus have seen the Father. God, dwell, heaven comes to earth. John chapter 1, there's this ladder going from you know, earth to heaven. And it's the Son of Man. And then Jesus, in the very next chapter of John, says, see this temple over here? The one in the middle of Jerusalem? Destroy it, in John chapter 2, and I will build it again in three days. By this he meant his resurrection. So when Jesus goes again, is Jesus still here? No, Jesus has ascended to heaven. But how is he going to build it again? After the resurrection, he sends his spirit to be with us. And so as God, again, doesn't come to the temple in terms of filling it with glory, but now because of the resurrection of Jesus, God has sent his spirit to dwell with us, not symbolically, but actually, so that heaven can come down to earth and that we can worship God in the heavenlies. Where do you sit in church, by the way? Have you had a problem moving to the Hellenic Club because you can't sit in your normal seats? How long have you been there for? Three weeks. Are you already established as to where you're seated? Yes? I'll have to ask you, Campbell, are they? We're staking our claims. You're staking your claims. <laughs> this is what Paul says. Where do you sit in church? Ephesians 2, verse 6. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's where you go to church. You go to church to heaven. 
So Psalm 29, listen to this. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Who are you talking to there? Angels. Any Presbyterians here who knows the doc? This is what this is what you have to be to be a Presbyterian. You need to know the doxology. Who knows the doxology? Praise God from whom? Do you know it? Yes. No. Yes. If you don't, you've got to learn it. Okay. Here's how it goes. Have you ever sung the doxology? How's it go? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's fine. Okay. They all come from God. Is that right? Good. Good Presbyterian worship. Praise Him, creatures here below. What are you doing in that line? You're encouraging each other to praise God, aren't you? Let's go to the next line. Praise ye heavenly hosts. What are you doing? You're talking to the angels. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Have you ever thought about that? Presbyterians, good old stodgy ones, go to church and they start the service with the doxology. How about we all praise God together and hey, angels, join in with us as well. Where do you go to church? In your heart? In North Hobart? Here's the universal answer of the Bible. You go to church in heaven. Worship is a heavenly activity. Listen to what 1 Peter says. If you don't believe in a temple in the New Testament, here it is, 1 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5. As you come to him... The living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, where are the stones? Do you have a building at Cornerstone? Please don't say no. Do you have a building at Cornerstone? It, what's it made out of? Stones. Point to them. That's them. As living stones being built into a spiritual house. That's a temple to be a, listen to this temple language, holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Where is Isaiah? He's in the temple. Is there still a temple in the New Testament? Absolutely. Why do you go to church? To encourage each other, to learn, to teach? Yet they're all great reasons. Primarily, though, why do you go to church? To worship out of the fear of the Lord. And so we see, look at verses 1 to 4 as I read them for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. It's a magnificent, a magnificent picture. I want you to picture this. Seraphine. Seraph, as Michael will tell you later, sorry Michael, I'm teasing you, is, means the burning ones. So picture burning angels, that's what it means. And they have six wings each. With two of their wings, they cover their eyes because no one can look directly upon the face of God. Uh, with two of their wings, they cover their feet for they disavow any attention, intention of their own to go where they would want to go because this is Isaiah's commission here. 
and with the other two wings, they stay aloft. This is the picture of heaven that Isaiah is receiving in the temple as he is worshipping God. And they cry with their voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I don't know if you have towns like this, this down here. Uh, we have towns like this in New South Wales. Do you know where Wagga Wagga is? Between Sydney and Melbourne? Okay, it, 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 what's the name of the town? Wagga or Wagga Wagga? It's Wagga Wagga. If you go to Wagga, please make sure it's Wagga Wagga. Why is it called Wagga Wagga? I'll tell you why. It's an Aboriginal word. And when you say things twice, it actually intensifies it. Do you want to know what Wagga means? You obviously aren't from New South Wales, are you? No one knows what Wagga means. You've forgotten? It means crow. And Wagga Wagga means the place of many crows. Anyone know where Woi Woi is in Sydney, near Gosford? Central Coast? Woi is an Aboriginal word that means deep, which always astounds me. If you've been to Woi Woi, the water's about that deep. But Woi Woi means very deep. Do you have places down here called Lonnie Lonnie or something? Do you have any places like that? Sorry? No? <laughs> but here is a threefold definition of holy. Not just holy, holy. What does the word holy mean? Holy means separate. Holy means distinct from creation. Holy means undefiled by sin. Holy means that in God there is righteousness and there is justice. Holy means that God is even separated from the unfallen angels in heaven. Holy means that in the brightness of his glory he is even unapproachable because he is the God who is holy. Holy means majesty. Holy means incomparability. And we see here that the seraphim in heaven, the six-winged creatures, are bowing down and they are not just saying God is holy. They are not just saying that God is holy, holy. But they are saying that God is holy, holy, holy. This is the only characteristic of God in the Bible that receives the threefold emphasis. Never is God called love, 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 or justice, 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 or mercy, 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 or anything, 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 except holy, holy, holy. Of all the characteristics of God, this is the one that defines him. And this is not the only time, if you know your Bibles well, that God receives the threefold definition of holiness because in Revelation 4 and 5, we see the 24 elders are bowing down before God and they are crying before him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in that picture in Revelation 4 and 5, we have this magnificent picture. I want you to picture the threefold holiness of God and your approachability to Him. And then we have the picture of the Lamb 
the one who was slain, and because of whose righteousness and holiness becomes our substitute, our advocate, and our high priest before the one who is holy, holy, holy. And we, as unholy people, have access into the very throne room of God. Tell that to your 14-year-old son next time he doesn't want to come to church. I just want you to imagine that the, the back wall of church just disappeared one Sunday. Just for 30 seconds, that'll do. In the Hellenic Club. The back wall's gone. And instead of doing by faith what we do in worshipping the holiness of God, but just for 30 seconds, we could do it by sight. What I'm saying to you is just imagine if when we, the living stones are in the temple, imagine if we could see what Isaiah saw. I tell you what, you'd no, you'd no longer complain about what the minister wears and doesn't wear because all you're worried about is the resplendent glory of how God is clothed in righteousness. And I tell you what, if church went for five minutes longer than usual, you would rejoice that you can do this for all of eternity. And you wouldn't whinge and complain about the fact that really we have to have that off-the-wall music again at church. You would be more focused upon the one you were worshipping rather than on the performance that's happening out the front. And if I asked you, how was church last Sunday? You wouldn't be using the criteria of how it went for me you would be using the criteria of the fact that I have been called to ascribe praise to the one who seats as holy, holy, holy. And having had a picture of who this Jesus is, it's just going to change everything. And so we see in verse 5 here that the very first thing that Isaiah sees when he sees the holiness of God is that the holiness of God drives him to confession. Uh, could you imagine if, um, if you were about to have surgery, or maybe some of you are having surgery soon? You know what it's like, and the anaesthetist there, and the anaesthetist puts that, that drip in your arm and says, count from 10 backwards, you know, and you get to 7. Well, you're just about at 8.5, and you hear the, the surgeon say to the, uh, the assisting nurse in the operating theatre, did you sterilise the equipment? And the last thing you hear is she says, oh, they're pretty clean, I ran them under, and that was it, and you just drift off. How are you feeling? It's either sterile or it's not, isn't it? Near enough is not good enough. You know, one of the things I notice as I go around, I do lots of visiting preaching, and when I do visiting preaching, I just preach. They do all the rest. But normally when they do all the rest, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing much these days. I'm not hearing a lot of confession. I'm not hearing about the fact that when we come into the presence of a holy God, the first thing that that drives Isaiah to do is Isaiah says, verse 5, look at it, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If you've got a good understanding of Reformed theology, of the doctrines of grace, the first thing that that will drive you to is your wretchedness. 
It's a category of unholiness. We will come before the Lord who is holy, holy, holy with sheer terror. What, what right, what qualification do I have to enter into the presence of a threefold holy God? And that's Isaiah's very first response. It is one of worship that leads to confession. But then in verse 6, we see this beautiful verse of cleansing. Then one of the seraphs flew, so picture here's his seraph coming down to me with a live coal. The burning one picks up a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See... This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. It's magnificent. It, it's a picture of being cauterized. He gets this live coal and he puts it onto Isaiah's lip and with it, with the pain of that cauterizing, so we see that there is cleansing from his uncleanness in the presence of a holy God. That's the problem with Isaiah. He presumed upon worship, but this is now appropriate worship. And the amazing thing that happens to us is that with even greater pain as we come to church each week, so we are reminded of the cauterizing of our sins. And of course, we don't sear people's lips, I hope, but we are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus, aren't we? It wasn't just his lips that were seared. It was his whole body that underwent penalty for the sake of our lack of righteousness that because of that, that we might have access to a God who is holy, who drives us to confession, who reminds us of the fact that we have been cleansed because of the work of Jesus. And then now, now that we understand who we are as redeemed people in the face of a holy God, now and only now Isaiah is commissioned to speak for God. And so by the time we get down to verse 8, we see for the very first time in this passage, God speaks. And God says this, He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And now Isaiah knows who he is. And so instead of saying no, he says, here am I, send me. I wonder if if you've thought about that in terms of worship. As you come, and all of life is worship, and I don't want to have a Sunday to Monday divide, But as you come to the temple to worship, because that's where you're going to worship, that's where we are. And I'm not talking about a place or a building. I'm talking about a living temple made up of living stones that you are coming into the presence of a holy God to ascribe honour to the Lord. And when you recognise who God is in fear... So you respond with a threefold proclamation that this is the one who is holy and as soon as you realise that, it will lead you to wretchedness. 
and an understanding of wretchedness will lead you to the cross. And in the cross, that the living stones of the temple are reminded of the work of Jesus, our high priest, who stands before the holy God for us. And because of that, God then now speaks to us from his word and you say, here am I, Lord, send me. And so you get sent out into the week to do the work of the Lord Jesus. I can't wait for Sunday. Where are you going tomorrow? Heaven. Heaven's coming to us. In fact, why not today as well? It's an amazing picture. In fact, John's Gospel said uh, in, Isaiah, in John chapter 12, verse 41, that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. As we look at the holiness of God, at the fear of the Lord, so who we are as a congregation starts to make sense. You going to church for encouragement? Well, that's great. I hope you get encouraged from church. It's not the prime reason. Are you going to church for teaching? Oh, look, I really hope you get teaching from church. That's so important. But even that is not the prime reason. One of our problems, I believe, in 21st century Christianity is that we've turned the throne room into a classroom. Where we are going is we are going to worship God. We need to be reminded of this several years ago, just in closing. Uh, several years ago, I went to a, one of those oh, off-the-wall churches uh, which had an evangelistic event full of young people. Uh, there were, I don't know, lots and lots of people there. It was a big event, five, six hundred people there. And uh, I, I regret to say it was a Christ College student who was running the whole thing. And it was great. It was whiz-bang. We had video clips, we had PowerPoint presentation, we had you name it, we had it. I was just wheeled in to be the guest speaker and wheeled out. And it was awesome. It was so good. And everyone at the end was on a buzz. And I don't know if you've met people who run church and when it goes really well at the end, there's sort of so much adrenaline pumping through their body, they're just sort of, they're on a high. So this student was on a high afterwards and he kind of came up to me and no one ever says it this bluntly, but this is what he really meant. He said, oh, hey, and how do you think it went? And I said to him... George, which is not his real name. I said, George, did you miss anything out? He stopped and he thought. He thought, no, the PowerPoint worked, the, da the data projector worked, the, 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 the band all worked and all the rest of it. I said, let me tell you one thing. We had this great service today and do you know what we didn't do? We didn't pray. Now, fortunately... He stopped and he saw it was a problem. He didn't try to defend it. In fact, he was so, I've never seen someone from going up here to go and crash. He will never do it again, I'm sure. How could you get to that point of being so focused on having everything so slick that you just left God out of the equation? It's so easy to happen. By the way, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's how the fear of the Lord should motivate us as we come into the presence of a holy God. Please pray with me.
Our Father, we thank you that edification is of great importance in teaching and encouragement. We thank you that we get so many of those things by being living stones in your spiritual house. But our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the great cornerstone of that temple. And we pray, Father, that what we do would focus on you through him, empowered by your spirit. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us what it means to fear you, to live in awe of you, and to ascribe greatness to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.